Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you all. I love it when Christmas Day is on a Sunday and we can come worship the Lord and uh, do more than just get up and read the Christmas story at home and things like that. Those things are nice, but it's nice to come and put off the presents and the festivities until we can give glory to God. And this is just a day we observe the birth of Christ. No one can know when He was born. Some people claim they can. It could just have easily been the end of December as it could have been the fall or the spring. No one can know. This is the day we observe it. And uh, the birth of Christ was something for which the angels rejoiced. So to say it's not something that we can celebrate is foolishness. Turn to Luke chapter 5th and final Sunday in our series on the advent of Messiah. Way back... I believe it was the end of November we started with part one. God said it, God did it. And when it comes to Messiah, when God says it, He does it. We see that in His first advent and we'll see it literally in His second advent. The second Sunday we talked about days of small things. Who is it that despises days of small things? Things that seem insignificant that change the course of human history. The genealogies of Jesus Christ are full of these days of small things. And then the third Sunday, we looked at every family apart and how the four families of David and the house of Nathan and Levi and Shimei directly uh, corresponded to what happened in the genealogy of Christ in Zerubbabel's day and what was repeated again, having been foreshadowed in the days of Christ. God did exactly what He said He was going to do. Last week we talked about the honor of kings. The honor of kings is to search out a matter that God has concealed. God conceals to His glory and it's the honor of kings to search it out. And that's what the wise men did when they went to Bethlehem. They knew to go to Bethlehem not because a star told them where to go. A star shone in the heavens... It appeared and it drove them to the Scriptures. And through the Scriptures and through the testimony and prophecies of Daniel that had passed down through the ages, there in Babylon and Persia, the wise men went seeking an answer. And they found it when the star reappeared and led them to the house where Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem. Today I want to look at our final, a final chapter in this series. And... Uh, I want to start or introduce it by going to Luke 2, the Christmas story. Bear with me today. We're not going to eat. I'm going to try to get this done. But keep in mind that this is not just for you all. This is for an audience uh, anywhere around the world when it's posted online. So I want it to be complete. Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first done when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David." to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger 
because there was no room for them in the inn. Here in this all too familiar passage, we're just given a few details about the word about the birth of Christ. Not every detail. Not every detail is necessary for us to see the point God is trying to make. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a manger. That's all it tells us. There's no stable here. There's no cave here. It doesn't tell us where in Bethlehem He was born. You see, Bethlehem as a town was actually larger in area in the days that Jesus was born than it is today. Rachel's tomb was called Bethlehem in the Old Testament. Today it's outside the bounds of the modern city of Bethlehem, about a mile north on the road to Jerusalem. So Bethlehem was a pretty big place. And the Scriptures here don't tell us where in Bethlehem He was born. We just know that it was in the city of David, and we know that they wrapped Him in swaddling clothes and laid Him in a manger. All too often we speculate about things and we create stories in our mind that are not here in the Scriptures, thinking, well, the New Testament talks about it. We don't see the answer here in the New Testament, so we're just going to presume a story and so come our Christmas mythologies. Mythologies about the wise men being there the day Christ was born. Mythologies about Him being born in a cave or a stable. These things aren't written here. But a lot of times if we want the answer to unanswered questions in the New Testament, all we've got to do is flip back to the Bible of Jesus and the Apostles. The Old Testament. And the prophets give us the answers. And they do this with the birth of Christ. The New Testament tells us He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And the Old Testament tells us exactly where that was. Turn to the prophet Micah. We know the prophet Micah well in terms of the birth of Christ. Chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, little among the thousands of Judah would come forth a ruler who would rule God's people Israel. The wise men were shown this verse, the scribes and Herod. Actually, there was something I forgot to share last week when we were talking about the wise men. You know, a lot of times our Christmas story depicts three wise men because there were three gifts. But friends, it's highly unlikely there were only three wise men. The Bible says that when they came into Jerusalem asking, where is this King of the Jews? It said that all of Jerusalem was troubled. All of Jerusalem. I dare say if three men walked into a pretty large city and asked a question about where the king of the Jews has been born, the whole city wouldn't be in an uproar. This was very likely a large entourage, a large group of wise men from the east so that their coming caused Herod and the scribes to ask questions and it put the whole city in an uproar of sorts. They were troubled. So the wise men were probably a huge group of people. That's the only explanation for what Matthew says in chapter 2 verse 3. That all Jerusalem was troubled. I think if I were living there, I'd be troubled if all of a sudden this huge group of people showed up that weren't Jewish from a far country that didn't look like me and were asking, where's the king of the Jews been born? Look at the prophet Micah. We're all familiar with chapter 5. Herod was wroth and angry 
Because when they went searching the Scriptures, what they found was more than verse 2. If you read the rest of the chapter, you see that this Messiah that would come out of Bethlehem would overthrow the heathen nations, which Herod was a part. Herod was a puppet appointed by a Roman Caesar who loved his throne and would kill to keep it. History shows us that time and time again. His own family he murdered to keep his throne. But if we go back to chapter 4 in Micah, we see a progression of thought here. If we look at the first seven verses, I'm not going to go into detail and read every word. We're given details about the millennial kingdom, the second advent of Christ, the second dominion. It says in verse 1, but in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. This is none other than the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. As we're told in Revelation chapter 21, it will be suspended above the earth during the millennial kingdom. It's the only creation of God in this present creation that will transcend the here and now and the future creation. High above the mountains, new Jerusalem, the home of the saints, the seat of Messiah's government, Revelation tells us it's about 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. Four square. That its wall is more than 200 feet tall. And the day is coming when this mountain will descend and be the center of Messiah's kingdom. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is exactly what John restates in Revelation 21, 23 verses through 27, about the kings of the earth coming into the Jerusalem and to pay homage to Messiah. And none of the wicked will be allowed in, but people coming to learn. In verse 3, He, which is Messiah, shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Verse 4 is interesting because in Messiah's kingdom, They, that is the people of His kingdom, shall sit every man under His vine and under His own or His fig tree. And none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. In Messiah's kingdom, there will be private property. No communism. Every man will sit under his own vine and his own fig tree and not have to worry about anybody, not even a progressive wicked government taking it from him. There's no communism in Messiah's kingdom. And then verse, we go down to verse 7, and he's talking about Israel and, and redeeming her. I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off, that is the scattered of Israel, a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth forevermore the capital of Messiah's millennial kingdom at His second advent 
is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. The first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. In verse 8, we're told that there's a first dominion that's other than the second dominion that has been described. We know this from the Scriptures as the two means of Messiah. We know this from Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24. We know this from the prophet Hosea. There are two comings of Messiah. There's a first advent in which He comes for a purpose, as a sacrifice, and there's a second advent in which He comes to rule and reign. And we're told here in verse 8 that, Oh, and thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come the first dominion. The first coming of Messiah is not to a stable. It's not to a cave. It's to a tower. The tower of the flock. What in the world is this talking about? If you go on and continue through the prophet, verses 9 and 10, the prophet asks a question. At this time, this is during the days of Hezekiah. At this time, the daughter of Zion travailed as if she had no king. In 722 B.C., uh, the northern kingdom had been taken captive by the Assyrians. Hezekiah and his kingdom in the south were threatened by Assyria. Assyria ruled the world. And the independent authority of Israel seemed not to exist. At the time of this prophecy, the daughter of Zion travailed as if she had no king. As if her counselor was perished. It says here that be in pain and labor and bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now thou shalt go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. And thou shalt be delivered, for there the Lord shall redeem thee from thine enemies. So, at the time of this prophecy, Israel wasn't anything like what was being told. It wasn't in a position. There was no king. It was as if their counselor had perished. How could these things be so? And God said, I'm going to prove it. For now, you're going to be carried away captive to Babylon. And that will serve to authenticate that these things concerning Messiah and the tower of the flock will come. A scattering and a regathering to and from Babylon would be a foreshadowing of an ultimate scattering and regathering involving the Assyrian, the Antichrist. Messiah, or the Millennial Kingdom, would be just as sure as what was lying at the doorstep in Hezekiah's day, but he couldn't even see it. You see, for the prophet to tell the people of Judah, that they would be carried away captive to Babylon was almost as laughable as Noah telling the people that a flood was coming. You see, in that day, Babylon was barely even known. It was a little tiny kingdom and the Assyrians dominated the ancient Near East. You might remember there was a story in 2 Kings 20 
Hezekiah begged God to give him more time to live when God told him to put his house in order. God heard his prayer. He turned back the shadow on the sundial. In those extra 15 years in which he lived, his son Manasseh was born, one of the wickedest kings that ever reigned in Israel. Now he repented and humbled himself at the end of his reign and was made right with God, notwithstanding much hardship because Hezekiah had to have his way. But when some people, some influential people from the city of Babylon heard that Nebuchadnezzar had been sick, they sent counselors to Nebuchadnezzar to pay him a visit. And they brought him gifts. And when they did, Hezekiah said, Come, let me show you my kingdom. Let me show you the temple. Let me show you all the things we have stored here in the house of the Lord. And Hezekiah in his pride bragged to these unknowns from Babylon, these emissaries, about all the things that were possessed. And the prophet came to Hezekiah and said, Who are men? He said, Oh, they came from Babylon, emissaries. And the prophet said, The day's coming when this, all these things that you have showed them will be carried away to Babylon. And Hezekiah's like, What? Okay, whatever, Isaiah. I mean, as long as there's peace in my days, I could care less. But that was a fantastic thing because there was no kingdom of Babylon. There was no Nebuchadnezzar. There wouldn't be for a hundred years. So God makes a promise here concerning Messiah and He says what will prove it is a Babylonian captivity which in that day seemed just as fantastic. In Micah's day, a Babylonian captivity was just as unlikely in the eyes of men as a Messiah coming to a shepherd's watchtower instead of a mighty palace or a temple. But the Babylonian captivity what we've read and talked about in the days of Jeconias and Zerubbabel and Jesus' genealogy, beginning a hundred years later, would prove it. When you're reading through chapter 4 and you get to verse 11, the prophet does what is very typical in the Old Testament. He telescopes from a shadow to the end of days, to the culmination of all things when Messiah comes. In verse 11, he suddenly telescopes to the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of the end. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. Neither understand they His counsel, for He shall gather them as sheaves unto the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. God has a purpose for the scattering and regathering of Israel. God has a purpose for all the trials and tribulations that He suffers. They suffer. God has a purpose for what took place at the UN Security Council a couple of days ago. God has a purpose for this time of trouble. And He'll use it to gather, to thresh, and punish the wicked. And to wake up and restore His people. In our teaching on the book of Revelation, there's two purposes in the tribulation. To punish the wicked... To punish evil, wicked people like Obama and his administration that stabs our greatest ally in the, in the Middle East in the back. 
He'll punish these wicked anti-Semitic nations and these evil Islamic nations that hate not only the physical ethnic descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the church. He has a purpose in what seems to be their exaltation, in what seems to be their prosperity, in what seems to be their gathering, for He gathers to thresh and to punish. We're told that Armageddon is where God gathers the nations to punish them. Where God brings them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, as Joel the prophet says, to plead with them concerning Zion, to teach them. It's the place where God gathers so that Messiah can put His foot on the Mount of Olives and overthrow all the heathen nations gathered against the people. God has a purpose. Jesus said, when you see... Jerusalem compassed about with armies in his Olivet Discourse in Luke chapter 21. Know that these things are near. What things? The eradication of Israel? No. The kingdom of Messiah. Then you get into chapter 5. It's so rich. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They... Who is the they? The they here are the Gentile nations. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. John 19. They here is the Gentiles. We know that Israel rejected His Messiah, but we're told here that the Gentile would smite Him upon the cheek. John 19. Verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged Him. And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, Gentiles, platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Prophecy fulfilled. But though they do this, verse 2, God's anointed, the smitten Messiah, out of Bethlehem will rule over them nonetheless. However, Messiah first must give up His people for a time. Verse 3, He will give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. There has to come a time when Israel travails in terrible trouble and cries out and acknowledges their transgression as it's told us in the prophet Hosea. Then He will come. But until that time, Messiah gives them up until the remnant is brought forth who will cry to Him for help. Paul writes about this in Romans 11. That blindness in part has happened unto Israel, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and then all Israel shall be saved. That's not every Jew that's lived throughout history. That's Israel remaining at that time. So we have this... Second coming, first and second coming differentiated here again. And then as you go through the rest of chapter 5, you see that Messiah will overthrow the Assyrian. Not the Assyrian living in Hezekiah's day. That was just a type of the ultimate Assyrian. He comes when the Assyrian is in the land, just as it was in Hezekiah's day. But we know this Assyrian is Antichrist from Isaiah chapter 10. God says He's going to punish in that day the stout heart of the king of Assyria in a day when the Lord has performed His whole work 
upon Jerusalem. And we know that, according to Daniel, is the end of time. An amazing picture here of God's plan and purpose for Israel. Not just a couple of verses to cherry pick about the birth of Christ, but amazing picture of God's plan and purpose for Israel and for Messiah. That God would chastise His people. That they rejected their Messiah. God would restore them. God would redeem them. And Messiah would reign. Messiah from little Bethlehem would reign and put down the enemies of the people of Israel. I don't like to just pick out verses. I like to look at the context. What do we learn about Messiah in these chapters in Micah? We learn that there are two advents, two dominions. We learn that Messiah will be rejected by His people and smitten by the Gentiles. We learn that Messiah will give up His people until the remnant is brought forth and calls for Him. This agrees with the uh, the book of Hosea chapter 5 and Romans as well. 9-11. through We learn that Messiah from little Bethlehem will rule Israel and overthrow the nations gathered against her. We learn that Messiah is God. It says His goings forth. That word going forth there is like water that just continues to go forth from a rock or a spring. It just keeps... Nobody really knows. It's like some, we sit in that hot springs on the way to Alaska up at Layard Hot Springs and you can see where the water's coming out of the ground and it just always comes out. Where's it coming from? That's what that means. His goings forth are of old, from everlasting. Messiah is God. When He delivers Israel, it will be He who has been here before. And then the last thing we learn is that the first dominion, we know where the second dominion arrives. It arrives at the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14. But the first dominion, the first advent, will arrive in Bethlehem, more specifically, the tower of the flock. In Hebrew, that's the word migdal, which means tower of idar, or idar, migdal idar, the tower of the flock. What is the Migdaladair? What is this talking about? The Migdaladair, the tower of the flock outside of Bethlehem, historically was a station or a shepherd's watchtower located on the north side of Bethlehem and it was near the road to Jerusalem. It was a military post of sorts to watch into the valley and to protect the city. These towers were common in ancient times, common in biblical times. Numerous types of these towers, or numerous examples of towers like this are found in the Old Testament. In Judges chapter 8, we have the Tower of Penuel. The people of Penuel refused to help Gideon after he and his 300 men overthrew the Midianites. And as they were pursuing the Midianite kings to destroy them, he asked for help. His men were weary. And they went to Penuel and asked for food and water. And the people were like, if, if these kings are really fleeing before you, I mean, they didn't even believe that a battle had been won and they refused to help Gideon. They refused to help him as he pursued these kings. 
Uh, and after he won, he came back and it says he tore down the tower and slew the men of the city. In Judges 9, we have the tower of Shechem. Abimelech, uh, who was the son of Gideon's concubine, Abimelech was that wicked king who buddied up with the men of Shechem to try to set up a monarchy in Israel. And Gideon had his 70 brothers, the 70 sons. I mean, not Gideon, but Abimelech had the 70 sons of uh, Gideon killed. And one of them, Jotham, escaped. And he came out on the, the mountain and, and preached that parable, mocking Abimelech and mocking this joke of a monarchy. I mean, the, the monarchy of Abimelech is kind of like the presidency of Obama. A joke. But Abimelech and his buddies in mischief that tried to set up this kingdom eventually turned on each other. That's pretty common. When you have buddies in mischief and wickedness, they end up destroying each other. So these wicked people trying to overturn our nation are eventually going to turn on each other and destroy each other. That's what happens. But Abimelech ended up burning down the tower of the men of Shechem who helped him get in power when they uh, rebelled against him after he reigned three years. This conflict was sent from God to get rid of a foolish attempt at making a king in Israel. It says that when the men of Shechem fled into this tower, there was a hold in the bottom, or a room in the bottom, and they went up to the top. And Gideon set, I mean, Abimelech set the hold on fire. That lower room was set on fire, and it burned the tower down, and as a result, a thousand people hidden up in the top, or hiding in the top, were killed. So this was no small tower at Shechem. A thousand people could fit upstairs and there was a large room in the bottom where the tower, uh, 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 kindling can be put in there and burn the place down. Judges chapter 9. and judges Later in Judges 9, we have the Tower of Thebes. Abimelech went against this tower to overtake this city and it says that all the people of the city fled into it. So it must have been a large tower because all the people of this little city could flee in there. And when Abimelech came against the walls, it says that a woman threw a rock or a millstone off the top of it and it broke Abimelech's skull. And therefore his days were over. That attempt at a monarchy in the days of Judges ended. So towers were pretty important in the days of Judges. In 2 Kings 9, there was the Tower of Jezreel. It's from this tower that um, King Joram of the northern kingdom, Ahab's son, and King Ahaziah of the king of Judah who was up there buddying around with his uncle, looked out the window and saw a man driving a chariot furiously. Wondered, what's this man up to? Who is this? That has to be Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Look at the way he's driving. He's a crazy driver. It's from the tower of Jezreel that they saw him approaching. And what did Jehu do? He slew the wicked king Joram and king Ahaziah in fulfillment of prophecy that he was anointed to do. And then he approached the tower and who is it that looked out at him from the tower with a painted face, made her face up? It was Jezebel. And one of her servants, her eunuchs, threw her down from the tower and she splattered all over the pavement. The Tower of Jezreel. 
in 2 Kings 18, in the days of Hezekiah, the very days in which this prophecy in Micah was given, there was the tower of the watchman that Hezekiah built near the borders of Gaza. And it's from this tower that it says he smote the Philistines. And then if you go to Nehemiah, it talks about the tower of Meah or the tower of Hananiel. In Nehemiah's day, when they built the wall or rebuilt the wall, they extended it beyond the wall that was prior to the Babylonian captivity and they extended it to include the towers or the watchtowers that were without the city. So Nehemiah's people expanded the wall and used the towers as part of the new wall. So we see towers, watchtowers, with large holds in the bottom. Places where people could, large number of people could flee to the top as being common in the ancient land of Israel. One such watchtower, a very ancient one, was just was in Bethlehem. Just on its north side. Turn to Genesis 35. This is all the way back to the Canaanite days when Jacob was just a sojourner in the land. There was no exodus. There was no kingdom. There was no nation of Israel per se. That had to be built down in Egypt. But way back in Genesis 35, when Jacob came into the land, his wife Rachel was pregnant and gave birth to his last child, Benjamin. And it was hard labor. And as a result of that, Rachel died. Turn to Genesis 35, verse 19. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is Ephrath. Ephrath is the ancient name. That's why Micah says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's the same place. Okay? Just like you have uh, San Francisco and San Francisco, it's the same place. Same place. Okay? Bethlehem and Ephrath. And then it says in verse 20, and Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. It's the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Rachel's grave is still in Israel. It's about a mile north of the modern city center of Bethlehem. And the rabbis go down there. Some of these Jewish Orthodox guys go down there every day and take these red threads and bless them and pray over them. Then they try to sell them to you in the Jewish quarter of the old city because they've been prayed for by a rabbi over the tomb of Rachel. But we know where that is. It's there today. And Jacob, on the way to Ephrath, buried Rachel uh, and put a pillar there. And then look at verse 21. And then Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar. Okay? So he buried Rachel on the way to Bethlehem, which is Ephrath. And then he went and put his tent up just beyond the tower of Adar. So we've got Rachel's tomb, Bethlehem, and the tower of Adar all right there. What is the... the uh, Tower of Adar. Well, in Hebrew, it's the exact same two words we find in Micah 4. Migdal Adar. Exact same place. Two words. Tower of the flock and Tower of Adar. 
So Rachel's tomb, according to Genesis 35.19, is Bethlehem. Therefore, we know that ancient Bethlehem was bigger than it is to, than the Palestinian city today. Today, this tomb is technically outside modern Bethlehem. Ancient Bethlehem was greater in area than the modern city. And Jacob, after burying Rachel in Bethlehem, went just beyond the tower of the flock to set up his camp. Now when we think of Bethlehem, we think, oh, the city of David, this little town. We don't consider all that happened there. Many, many years ago, we know that Boaz owned a threshing floor there. And we're told in Ruth, quote, Ruth chapter 2 verse 1, that he was a mighty man of wealth. Boaz was a rich man, a mighty man of wealth, living in Bethlehem. It tells us in Ruth chapter 2 verse 4 that when he went out to look at his fields that he came from Bethlehem. We know he owned a threshing floor there. Obviously he lived there. A mighty man of wealth would have a big house, an established presence. We know from the genealogies that Boaz, being about a hundred years old, gave him and Ruth gave birth to Obed. Obed was very old when he gave birth to Jesse. Jesse was about 86 years old when he gave birth to David. And then David, through Solomon, all the way down was Joseph of the house and lineage of David. The family home of a mighty man of wealth like Boaz and a heritage that included King David would have undoubtedly been passed down through generations. Remodeled, rebuilt, but a family place established. And Joseph would have returned to that family home. Not some random motel in a place where he didn't know anybody. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, 11 and 12, Samuel is in Bethlehem. He goes there to anoint a replacement for King Saul. And that's where he meets with Jesse and Jesse brings out all his sons and he's going to anoint the king and then they're going to sit down and eat. And Jesse's like, none of, I mean, Samuel's like, none of these is the Lord anointed. Do you have any more? And Jesse's like, yeah, he's out feeding the sheep. And Samuel says, go get him and we're going to stand here and wait for you to go get him. So we're not even going to sit down at the table and eat. We're going to stand here and wait. David was keeping the sheep nearby and he was obviously near enough to be fetched while the people waiting could stand and wait on. People aren't going to stand and wait for 45 minutes or an hour. But he was nearby. In 1 Samuel 17, we're told that David returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now think about this, an ancient tower beyond where Rachel was buried and Jacob set up his tent. A mighty man of influence like Boaz descended through his sons Jesse who was obviously an influential man and known by the elders of the town. King David anointed there by Samuel feeding his sheep at Bethlehem. We can't forget all of these things when we read the story of Jesus' birth in Luke 2. 
Let's go back to Luke 2 with all of these things in mind and with what the prophet says there about the tower of the flock, the Migdal Adair, which is exactly the same place beyond which Jacob spread his tent. A tower that went all the way back to those days. Look at verse 3 of Luke 2. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. His own city. A place with family connections. Who goes home and doesn't have a place to stay? Who goes home and doesn't know anybody? Foolish. When I go and lived when I went and lived in San Francisco for two years, when my wife and my family and I went and lived overseas, when we came back home to our own town, we didn't come to a place where there were strangers. We had family here. We had a place to stay. In verse four, to the city of David, the same place where David kept his sheep. The same place where there was once a mighty man of wealth who had a threshing floor and a great house that would have been passed down. So it was while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Swaddling clothes. What is that? We say rags, like there were some random pile of dirty rags in a smelly stable, and that Joseph and Mary, who went to a town that was connected to his heritage, had nowhere to go and they had to look for a motel, and some random innkeeper just turned a pregnant woman out into the night, and he had to fend for himself in a lonely stable. We can know what swaddling clothes are by turning to the book of Job. Because God speaks of the darkness as being like swaddling clothes in terms of the waters that broke forth. Turn to Job 38.9. Let's look at verse 6. Put it in context. He's asking Job. God answers Job out of the whirlwind. You think you know so much? You think you got it all figured out, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 6, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, angels, angels that came down in Genesis 6 and cohabitated with women, sons of God. Wicked. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? So we're talking about God causing the waters to come forth and then restraining them. The waters broke forth, but they were restrained. We see them restrained today on the sea. They only come so far. When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it. So God restrained the sea when the waters broke forth. He restrained. <coughs> he made the cloud a garment to restrain the water and the thick darkness as a swaddling band. 
A swaddling band, according to this passage, is used for restraint. It's used to restrain or to bind, as God used darkness to bind the sea. Swaddling clothes are swaddling bands. The Greek word is interesting used there in Luke 2 because it references a verb that means to strap or wrap with strips. Strips that have been made by taking a cloth and ripping it and making homemade strips. Strips that are meant to bind and to wrap that have been made from rending or tearing. It's funny, if we go to the Jewish traditions, the Mishnahs, which is the core text of the oral tradition, the, the, uh, the, the, the Talmud that we've talked about, or the Targums, which are the commentaries on the Tanakh, in the languages of the people, and Aramaic and other things like that. They told us, or they tell us, that the shepherds near Bethlehem were Levitical shepherds, and that temple flocks that would be sacrificed in the temple, that had to be without spot and blemish, were kept near Bethlehem. The only ones that could be used for the daily sacrifices or for the Passover lambs were lambs that were without spot, injury, or blemish. So how could they tell if these things... They had to tell right at birth. To inspect a baby animal, what do you have to do, what do, you have to, do to any animal when you go into a vet to be able to inspect it? Is it just going to sit there and let you look at it? No, you have to restrain it. You see, these lambs, when they were born, had to be restrained and inspected. And then if they were found unblemished, they were wrapped carefully in those first few hours of life to protect them from injury so they could be used for the sacrifice. What were they wrapped with? Just as the sea was wrapped with swaddling bands of darkness, these lambs were wrapped with swaddling bands to restrain them so they could be inspected. And if they were found to be suitable and without spot and blemish, they were wrapped to protect them in those early hours of life as they learned to walk and sort around from injury. Go back to Luke chapter 2. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling bands that just happened to be where He was born. Swaddling bands that served a specific purpose. And then it's told that they laid Him in a manger. A manger was a crib. It was a crib that could be used for fodder. It was a crib-like appliance. I don't know what the word would be. Not appliance, that implies electrical. But it was a crib-like structure that was used not only to feed, but it could be used to lay the little lamb down when he's restrained and to inspect him for the temple sacrifice as soon as he was born. Nowhere here in Luke 2.7 are we told anything about a stable and nothing about a cave. Nothing. It's not mentioned. Why were they where they found swaddling bands in a manger? Because there was no room in the inn. You see, tradition says or would have us to believe that Mary and Joseph got stuck in a stable with random rags, dirty old rags, as a last resort to give birth to the Son of God. And that the innkeeper was some evil man who, without compassion who would turn a pregnant wife of a son of David into the night to fend for themselves. 
Some people in the media today try to say Mary and Joseph were immigrants. They weren't immigrants. They were Jews living in the land of Israel given to the Jewish people by God. What foolishness. When I went to Bethlehem a couple years ago, we were going to go into the church of the nativity, but then we found out we had to hire a Palestinian guide, and we were going to have to pay some guy 20 bucks to show us some silver star on the floor where Jesus supposedly plopped out and everybody likes to put their iPhones in there to get good luck. No thanks. And then he got mad in typical Muslim fashion, very angry, a violent people, got angry and told us that you have to hire me as a guide. And we just laughed at him. He yelled at us as we walked away, but as we were walked away, walking away, we saw this big banner on the side of a wall that said, we, we welcome you to the Palestinian city of Bethlehem just like we welcomed Jesus 2,000 years ago. I thought to myself, what a bunch of propaganda. That ranks right up there with Nazi propaganda. Number one, there weren't any Palestinians in the land when Jesus was born. And number two, He wasn't exactly welcomed because Herod sent people down there to kill all the babies of Bethlehem. So give me a break. Give me a break. But tradition would have us believe that they were wandering around looking for a place to stay in Joseph's home, looking for a motel, and some innkeeper with no compassion whatsoever just turned them out into the night. Nothing could be further from the truth. The word in here, it's the same Greek word we find elsewhere in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus tells His disciples to go. Look for a man in the street. And when you see him, follow him. Follow him to a house. And then ask the goodman of the house if the guest chamber has been made ready. And he will, as it says in Luke, he showed them a large upper room where Jesus could eat the Passover with his disciples. In both Mark and Luke, the word used for the upper room where the Last Supper took place is translated guest chamber. It's the exact same word used here in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, translated in. You see, the inn in Bethlehem was not a motel. It was a guest chamber connected to a residence. That's the way it worked back then. There weren't motels. There wasn't a motel six. It was a guest chamber. It was an inn connected to a residence. In the case of Mary and Joseph, a guest chamber connected to the ancestral home of David back to Boaz, a mighty man of wealth. There was no room for them there in the guest quarters of his ancestral home. Why was there no room? Well, perhaps it was crowded, but you also have to remember the law that faithful Jews took seriously in the days that Jesus was born. Turn to Leviticus 15. Leviticus 15, starting at verse 19. And if a woman have an issue, and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days. And whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even or the evening. 
And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean unto the even. And whosoever toucheth anything that she sat upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean unto the even or the evening. And if it be on her bed or on anything whereupon she sitteth, when he toucheth it, he shall be unclean until the evening. It would have been considered unclean to have Mary give birth in the home, particularly when many family members were coming to be registered. So they weren't the only guest there. It would have not just been unclean, it would have rendered everybody in there unclean and would have made a problem when people are trying to go and get registered with this census. So a safe place nearby had to be found so they could adhere to the law. A a safe place, a private place, a special place that undoubtedly they were helped to locate. A place with a manger and swaddling bands. Let's go back to Luke 2. Luke 2 verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds keeping or abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So if these were Levitical shepherds, like they, we know they were, uh, the, the, the Talmud didn't allow shepherds to be kept near towns. They were to be in the wilderness, unless, of course, they were related to temple sacrifice. So these were Levitical shepherds. So it doesn't matter what time of year it was. It could have been super cold. They would have still had responsibilities with the sheep, especially Awasi sheep that are known to give birth twice in a year native to the Middle East. So it says in the same country. That means the same grounds. On the same grounds upon which this manger was found, there were shepherds abiding. The same grounds. Think about this. Have you ever been to the state fair in Raleigh? It's pretty large. Large fairgrounds, right? You've got the midway where all the rides are. And on the same grounds across the place... You've got the livestock shows. It's a bit of a walk, but it's all on the same ground. That's what was happening here in the same country, on the same grounds as the manger. Now think about this. There's a place over there in Bethlehem. It's the traditional location for the shepherd's fields. We can't know exactly if that's where they were tending their sheep, but let's assume it was. The traditional location of the shepherd's fields the distance from there to the modern city city of Beth, city center of Bethlehem is only two miles. It's only a 45-minute walk today from the traditional location of the shepherd's fields to the city center. It's only two miles. It takes 45 minutes to walk. From Rachel's tomb, just north of Bethlehem, modern Bethlehem, what the Bible says was Bethlehem, to those shepherd fields is only about three miles. And Bethlehem's city center to Rachel's tomb is only about one mile. You could walk from the city center to Rachel's tomb in about 22 minutes. We're not talking about long distances here. In verse 11, For unto you... The angel, of course, lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. We know the Scriptures. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. In the city of David, they're told Messiah is born. Bethlehem, 
Bethlehem, a place that was no more, at max, was three miles away. Not far. The city of David. A large place that in those days included Rachel's tomb, bigger than the modern city boundaries. In Bethlehem, this city where all of these people were coming to be taxed who were connected to David, who knows, maybe there weren't that many people connected to him, I don't know. But where people were coming to be taxed, Obviously, the Romans weren't stupid. They would have timed this census at a time when people are celebrating or coming to central locations anyway for festivals. It could have been at the, the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, Passover, whatever, or what, some pagan festival that the heathen were celebrating in other provinces. I don't know. could have been different times in different provinces. The Romans weren't foolish. But um, they're told Messiah is born in a city two to three miles away. In verse 12, then they're given a sign, and this shall be a sign unto you. Go to this house with this color roof, this car in the driveway on this street. No. This is the sign. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes or swaddling bands lying in a manger. That was the sign. They weren't given directions. They were told in Bethlehem, you'll find a manger and a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, my goodness, Bethlehem was no tiny little village with a couple of buildings. It was a large place. There were countless houses. I'm sure these village homes had stables or different things attached to them where they kept their, their livestock. Could have been anywhere. Well, gee, thanks. You could have at least given us a little better directions than that. Well, okay. That's the sign. Then it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And then look at verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them, those Levitical shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even to Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. They said, let's go to Bethlehem. They didn't say, let's go search Bethlehem. They didn't say, let's go find in Bethlehem what they're talking about. They said, let's go see. And then look at verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe line in a manger. Now when you look at the, the grammar here, the syntax when it says they came with haste and found, that adverb haste goes with the verb came and it goes with the verb found. So they not only came quickly, they found them quickly. They found them quickly. How in the world did they know where to go? How did they know where to go? But thou, tower of the flock, Unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. They know, knew where to go because it's a place they were familiar with and it was a place written about in the prophets. Right there in the same context as the place that Herod and the scribes found when the wise men went to Bethlehem. That's how they knew where to go. And when the angel said what it said about swaddling bands in a manger, they were used to using them. It was a familiar place and it pricked their memory concerning the Scriptures and they went right to where they knew it would be.
It's funny because in the same Mishnahs and the Targums, the Jewish traditions that talk about which shepherds were allowed to tend their sheep near towns and talked about the Migdal Adair, it tells us that it was not just a watchtower, but it talks about how it was used over time. It came to be used as a place of protection for the ewe lambs to give birth. Once the lambs were born, they were restrained with swaddling bands, probably set in a manger to be inspected for blemishes. And those that were without spot were then wrapped in those first hours of life to protect them from injury until they could walk on solid footing. Bethlehem plus a manger plus swaddling clothes plus Micah 4.8 the tower of the flock could only mean one place. The Migdal Adair. The tower of Adar, beyond which Jacob spread his tent when Rachel died. That's the only place it could have been that Jesus was born. These shepherds would have been accustomed to using this tower. There would have been plenty of fodder, a comfortable place. We know the whole these tower were huge. If a thousand people could run up in the top and protect themselves from Abimelech, it had to be big. It had a large hold, a comfortable spot. This had to be the place where the sign and the response of the shepherds makes no sense. The wise men couldn't just go to Bethlehem and find the place. The star had to show them the place, the house, a little bit later. But the shepherds knew right where to go. They came hastily and they found it hastily. Now I could care less what origin of Alexandria, that old heretic, but so much of our false teaching, so much false Reformed theology and false Catholic theology go back to Him, messed with the Scriptures in the 3rd century. He's the one that said Jesus was born in a cave. I don't care what He said. Constantine, you know, his mother Helena came down to Israel and traveled around and supposedly found all these places and marked these spots where these things happen. She's the one that went and identified the location of the church of nativity as the place of Christ's birth. And there was a cave because Origen said there was a cave and blah, 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 blah. Well, Constantine's mom was wrong on a lot of things. She was wrong on the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Big time. Wrong on lots of stuff. And just because an ancient error... An ancient knee-jerk error for profit plus a majority of opinion doesn't ever equal truth. just doesn't. So we can take all that Catholic stuff with a grain of salt. All that superstitious nonsense going on at the Church of the Nativity today is foolishness. And what's so funny about it, it's not even the place Jesus was born. If we believe the Scriptures... The oldest tradition based upon Genesis 35 and chapter 48 where it says that Ephrath, the same is Bethlehem, places Ephrathah, what's mentioned in Micah 5.2, about four miles south of the old city of Jerusalem and just northeast of the modern city of Bethlehem, very close to the tomb of Rachel. Some archaeologists are convinced that they have found the ruins of a structure about 40 yards up the hill 
from what they think is the location of the tower, the ancient Migdal Eder. Now obviously this stuff gets covered up and buried because of the lucrative business that is the Church of the Nativity and the profit that's gained by the Catholics and the PLO and even the Tourism Board of Israel. You know, stuff gets... You've got to follow the money. You know, information that's released is what ensures profits. We see that with Noah's Ark and the location of Mount Sinai, the Garden Tomb, evolution, undeniable, observable scientific evidence that shows us the earth is very young. That's buried because it doesn't fit the propaganda. So we can understand why these things get covered up. This structure, in my opinion, is Joseph's ancestral home from where David with the sheep could be fetched while everyone was able to remain standing and wait. And the tower of the flock, the Migdal Adair, was a place nearby to the guest chamber of this ancestral home where there was no room, where there was a risk of making it unclean with, all the, with the other guests. It was a place nearby where Mary could be placed and be safe. It was safe enough to protect people when they had to run into it when they were invaded in Old Testament times and it was safe for the ewe lambs to be born a safe place where Mary could be comfortable from the traditional site of the shepherd's fields to what archaeologists have thought would be the location of this tower you could run there in an hour easily maybe three miles Three miles over hill and dale. Messiah in little Bethlehem, Ephrathah, little among the thousands of Judah, was born in the Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, the very birthing place of the sacrificial lambs, wrapped in the very swaddling bands that were used to restrain, to inspect, and to protect them for temple sacrifice. Shh. And the shepherds, the very Levitical shepherds, who inspected the lambs that were born there, reserving and sitting aside those that were without spot and blemish for the daily temple sacrifices, morning and evening, those very shepherds that inspected the little lambs, ran to inspect the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And they found Him, as the angel had said, without spot and without blemish. Just like our Heavenly Father to arrange it this way. Now get this. The imagery doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the birth of Christ. In Numbers 28, we're told that two unblemished lambs were to be sacrificed for a continual burnt offering day by day in the sanctuary. It's very important. Two lambs sacrificed day by day. That's over 700 lambs a year. So this keeping these temple flocks was a year-round job. Then you've got to consider the Pesach lambs and all of that too. But... We go back to the Jewish tradition, the oral law, the, 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 um, the Talmud, and it tells us that the first of these daily sacrifices 
was done at the third hour, which was about 9 a.m. And the second daily offering of these sacrificial lambs birthed at the tower of the flock was at 3 p.m., the ninth hour. The first at the third hour, 9 a.m., the second at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 25, or verse 24. And when they had crucified Him, they parted His garments, casting lots upon them that every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified Him. You see, when that first daily sacrifice was slain, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was nailed to a cross. And then go to verses 33 of that same chapter. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Jesus was put on a cross on the third hour and He hung there for six hours. And when the ninth hour came, He died. Jesus was nailed when that first lamb was sacrificed. And He gave up the ghost when the second one was sacrificed. He was also the ultimate Passover lamb that was sacrificed that very day on Passover A.D. 30 when He was crucified. So when John the Baptist saw Him coming in chapter 1 of John's Gospel and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, when Peter in his first epistle tells us that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot, they spoke quite literally. Let's go back to Luke 2 and I'm going to end. We're going to finish up the chapter. Verses 17 through 20. These Levitical shepherds came and found the Son of God and did exactly what they were accustomed to do. They inspected the Lamb of God in the tower where the temple lambs were inspected. The tower of the flock, the first dominion, came. Just like Micah said, out of Bethlehem, out of Ephraim. And just as certain as these things happened literally, the things regarding His second coming, which is the Mount of Olives, will happen. And these temple Shepherds, in essence, inspected Him and found Him without spot and blemish. How do we know? Verse 17, And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. As this story on Christmas Day long ago wraps up, we have three very important verbs connected to the Word of God revealed. And that's what this whole five weeks has been about. It's been about the Word of God revealed. Revealed. When Messiah came, it was exactly as God spelled it out in detail. We can trust the Word of God. And to these shepherds who knew the prophecy, the Word of God was revealed and they found it to agree exactly with what Micah had said. To those to whom the Word of God has been revealed, there's three very important verbs that we would do well to remember. Three very important responses and actions because to us the Word of God has been revealed. The first one, it says that the shepherds made known abroad. To them the Word of God was revealed and they didn't keep it to themselves. They made it known not just to their neighbor around the corner, but abroad. To us, the Word of God has been revealed. We can hold it in our hands. We can hold an Old Testament and a New Testament preserved by God. And if we want to be like the shepherds, we won't keep it to ourselves. We'll make it known abroad. To celebrate Christmas is to act exactly like the ones that celebrated the birth of Christ did. To make known the truth of the Son of God. The second verb we would do well or action or response we would do well to consider is Mary herself. Mary saw all of this. She saw the shepherds coming. Undoubtedly they talked about the prophecy. All of these things came to pass. What looked like a hardship was proven to her to be God's ways higher than her ways. He took care of everything. I put out an email update last night, an online newsletter for our ministry at the end of the year. I wanted to get it out. At the very end of it, I wanted people to know that I looked at our giving for this past year. Our giving from 2016 was $41,000 less than 2015. And it was $20,000 less than 2014. And I made it very clear, I'm not saying this to complain. I'm not saying this to pull on your heartstrings. I'm saying this because when I look at 2016 and all that God has done, it can be said of us just like it was said of Israel when they finished up the wilderness wandering. You walked around for 40 years and you lacked nothing. God provided. Not in the ways we thought. God provided for Mary and Joseph and He did it to fulfill prophecy. Not in the ways they had thought, but undoubtedly she was confronted with God's ways being higher than our ways, just like it was for Kyle. i got a little detail you probably don't know about where Kyle's concerned. He was refused. Uh, he wasn't allowed to board the plane a week ago because he had less than six months left on his passport. Kind of ridiculous because he was supposed to come back before it expired. And so Kyle wasn't allowed to board. It was a big mess. He was stuck in Dallas. He had a cousin there, but his cousin was out of town. He had to go apply for a passport, an emergency application, got a congressman involved. Cost him 175 bucks, maybe. I don't remember the amount. He was stuck in Dallas by himself basically for a week at an apartment with no one home. 
He had to use Uber taxi drivers to get him around. He had to go to the passport office. His mom had to help try to find another ticket that wouldn't allow him, that would allow him to go and not cost an arm and a leg. They were prepared to walk away because it's been a whole saga even getting this ticket in the first place. But at the end of the day, Kyle, they found a ticket, cost him 75 bucks. Kyle got him a passport, good for 10 years. Kyle was able to share the gospel with an Uber driver, taxi driver, who was very open and heard the truth. Kyle got to the airport, and when he got to the airport and was boarding last night, they very randomly and suddenly, for a 14-hour flight, upgraded him for free to first class. So I'd say that was worth 75 bucks and a few days to chill out in Dallas when I've been running around like a chicken with his head cut off trying to prepare to go on a long trip. God knew what He was doing all along. It wasn't a trial, it was a blessing. And undoubtedly, that's the way Mary saw it. Because in verse 19 it said, she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds made known abroad. Those to whom the Word of God revealed made known abroad. Those to whom the Word of God was revealed kept and pondered. It's not enough for us to sit here and listen to these messages and do the church thing and then go home. Are we going to keep them and think about them? The Bible talks in one place about God honoring those that sit around and think about the things that have been taught them. I believe that's in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They sat around and talked about it. They pondered it. Too many people in the churches listen to the messages, but they don't do what Mary did. They don't keep it and ponder it and think about it. Those of us to whom the Word of God has been revealed need to keep and ponder the things that we've learned and use it in days of adversity, not to have a knee-jerk reaction, but to trust the God of the Bible who does what He says He's going to do. And then the last thing it says, the last verb or action that we should pay attention to and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Glorifying and praising God as they returned to their normal routine. You see, we come together and we have church and we glorify and praise God. And we say amen. But does that glorifying and praising God continue when we go out the door? and we get home from a mission trip, or we get home from church, or we go back to a normal routine. Well, it did for the shepherds. It wasn't just something that happened on one day, and then they praised God and had a little worship service and went about their business. They returned glorifying and praising God. Those to whom the Word of God was revealed made, made it known abroad. They kept it and pondered it. And when they returned to their normal everyday activities, they continued to glorify and praise God who did exactly what He said He was going to do. These weren't reactions. They were responses. My friends, a reaction is emotional. It's quick. It's instant. It's knee-jerk and it's temporary. A response is the fruit of thought. A response isn't hasty. It isn't knee-jerk. A response considers and a response is lasting. 
May we not react to these messages about the Messiah. May we respond to them and be just like those to whom the Word of God was revealed on that Christmas day long ago. To celebrate the birth of Christ is nothing other than to celebrate, or should be nothing other than to celebrate the Word of God. And to celebrate the Word of God is to be sober, to be vigilant, to ponder, to keep, to make own, eagerly as we await Messiah's return in these dark and troublesome times, not unlike at all the dark and troublesome times in which He was born. He came once, the first dominion, a star out of Jacob from little Bethlehem at the tower of the flock. He'll come again, a scepter out of Israel, and His foot will split the Mount of Olives in half. And it doesn't matter how many Muslims are lined up at that temple mount, he'll walk through that eastern gate and they'll melt before him. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy to the world, the Lord will come. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. Just as the Word of God has said. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your Word. May we be like those to whom the Word of God was revealed on that Christmas morn long ago. They made known abroad what was told them concerning Messiah. As Mary, Mary, she kept and pondered the things that she had seen. And the shepherds returned to their everyday lives glorifying and praising God. God, we get caught up sometimes in traditions and cultures and we don't go to the Word of God and often we find the Word of God tells us something different and it's important because it's fulfilled prophecy and it shows us exactly why Messiah came. When Messiah was born in that tower, Lord, it showed us, it showed the shepherds very clearly what the purpose of His first dominion was. His purpose at His first coming was to be a sacrifice. Rejected a Nazarene. But praise God, His purpose at His second coming is to be a ruler, a governor that sits on a throne in Jerusalem. The throne of David. Praise God for Your Word, Lord. We praise You for what it reveals. And that when we think we have it all figured out, you still teach us something. As we go forth to spend time with our families today and to celebrate, just in the day, the day we observe your birth, may, may our joy about these truths and about the Messiah not end today or tomorrow. May we carry it throughout the year. And may it be something to remind us to watch and to wait. Not like foolish virgins, but wise with the plenty of oil and the wicks trimmed, waiting for You, O oh Lord, to come for Your church. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem today. We pray that You would fulfill what You began when You were born in the very place where the sacrificial lambs were inspected. When John, O oh Lord, said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, He spoke quite literally. 
And we praise You that it's not with corruptible things that we've been redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and blemish. And because You were without spot and blemish, we can be without spot before our Father in heaven and enter His throne room boldly because You have cleansed us, O Lord, from all sin. Thank You for these brethren, Lord, and for the fellowship we have here. Bless the remainder of our day, O Lord. In Jesus Christ, the Messiah's name, born in Bethlehem at the tower of the flock, crucified, buried, and risen again, and soon coming. In His name we pray. Amen.